trouble or even here trying to set some sort of theological conundrum to throw Jesus off. But with each of these, I think it, we benefit a lot as Christians just to pause to see what the answer Jesus gives is. Because even though the direct con- the context isn't necessarily so much about the answer he gives, but more of showing Jesus than the authority he has to answer the questions in the first place, if we spend time with these answers, we can get a lot of hope as Christians, particularly this morning, seeing that our belief in the resurrection is not absurd. Let's read God's holy and errant word. This is Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a brother, man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, that the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, is it not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead but of the living, you are quite wrong. I think this is a pretty stark difference between us today and Jesus when he was interacting with opponents. Jesus didn't really put a buffer. He didn't seem to um, bubble wrap the truth before he sent it going the way of his opponents. He was really clear. He told people when they were wrong that they were wrong. And sometimes we might be offended by his style that he's so abrupt, so brash. But that's only if we forget the fact that true love loves people enough to tell them the truth when they are wrong. The Sadducees here And the title of the sermon is that God's word is not absurd. And I like it when I get to rhyme like that. It doesn't happen. I'm not too creative of a person. But God's word is not absurd is the fundamental premise of this. We're introduced for the first time and the last time in Mark's gospel 
to a group that you probably have heard of before, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are not unlike today's liberals or today's non-progressive in the sense of moving beyond the teachings of Scripture, thinking that God's Word has somehow evolved and no longer is necessary to Christians today. The Sadducees thought this way. We're introduced to them right at the get-go that they are those who say there is no resurrection. The fact that people don't take God's word seriously is not something new. The people that deny the existence of God as atheists is not something new. Or people who try to pretend to be humble enough just to say, I just don't know. That's not anything new. You see, these Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. But really here, we see that their denial of the resurrection is something more fundamental. They're anti-supernaturalist. That's why they don't believe in the resurrection. It's because they don't believe in the supernatural realm at all. They're like many, maybe even of you, who when they're looking at the world, see only natural laws at work, attribute different providential acts and different things that seem to have meaning just to chance, and say that, yeah, you know what? God's word is helpful. But it's helpful as a list of moral duties in which we can know how to live a good life. But we're not supposed to take the Bible seriously. If you want to know more about who these Sadducees are, you could read Josephus and get a little bit more of a diagnostic detail about what they believe. But Acts 23 does a pretty good job. Acts 23, 6, verses 6 through 8, Paul is about to go to prison. He's being arrested, and he explains very shrewdly why he's being arrested. And he does so in a way to divide his opponents against one another. And he says it with a pretty simple statement. Paul says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection from the dead that I am on trial. And the Pharisees at this point agreed with Paul because they agreed that the Bible is the word of God. The Pharisees agree that the resurrection is true. And we're told a little bit more about the Sadducees in verse 8 and why they so vehemently disagreed with Paul preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. 4, verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. This is the more obvious kind of unbelief. You know, Jesus mainly attacks, and actually every other instance in Mark's gospel, his opponents are those who take God's word seriously. But what about people who don't? How do we deal with them? How do we deal with people who don't take the authority of God's word as the word of God? Do we, as soldiers in this fight, hold out a sword to the enemy, the sword of the word of God? And when our opponent says, I don't believe in your sword, 
at that point, are we really supposed to throw our sword aside and say, well, if you don't believe it, this won't work. I'm going to throw this aside. No. Truth is truth, whether you believe it or not. And this is true for the Sadducees. And we get to see here why Jesus brings up probably angels later in the conversation. Jesus doesn't care that they don't believe in reality or pretend that something in reality doesn't exist. It does. You might not believe in semis, but if you go into the road and there's a semi coming, it doesn't matter how sincerely you believe that semis don't exist. Reality will smack you. It will flatten you. It is for your best interest. The most loving thing to do would be before you go into the road, let me convince you. Let me plead with you that semis are real so that you do not waste your life. That's what the Sadducees are doing here. And the Sadducees here are trying to trip up Jesus, though. They don't think that they're really, their position is the one that needs to be defended. They think Jesus's position, his beliefs are the ones that need to be defended. And they use here probably a philosophical, an old chestnut, a question that they've been able to stump many people time and time again. If you were a Sadducee sending your child off to Hebrew school, and you're trying to prepare your Sadducee child to interact with the Pharisees, this is the kind of question that you would give them. And the whole point in proving this is to prove that the resurrection is absurd. And if we're going to interact with our opponents, with people we disagree with, we need to understand where they're coming from. So that when we answer their questions, we're actually answering their questions, their objections. So let's take a look. Why do they think that the resurrection is absurd? Well, these Sadducees are a little bit different from just pure skeptics. Josephus said that they actually do hold to the, five, the first five books of Moses, that they are the word of God. They just reject everything else. It's pretty obvious from books like Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. It's explicit where Daniel says there will be a coming resurrection. The resurrection of God's people to everlasting life and the resurrection of the wicked to everlasting hell. An explicit statement, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. You could pull so many different ones from the book of Psalms to the prophets. But these are the hyper-conservative ones. They only take really the first five books as God's word. And they show this because they quote Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. That's what they do in verse 19. Hence, they said, Moses wrote that if a bro man's brother dies, he leaves behind a wife, but leaves no children. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 is very clear. This is the Leveret Law. 
This is a law which governed marriage in the Old Testament in a way which it doesn't govern us today. And I'm very thankful for that, by the way. That this was governing their marriages by making provision for families to be raised up if they have their husband die, that they would still have a right entitled to the land that they've inherited. You see, the people of Israel inherited a promised land with borders, with boundaries that belong to specific families. And another thing I'm very thankful for is that marriage was to be done within the tribe itself. There was 12 tribes of Israel that each had their own allotments, their own borders. And to protect against this, each person in the tribe, if you're of the tribe of Judah, you had to marry someone within the tribe of Judah. If you were in the tribe of Benjamin, you had to marry another Benjamite. God regulated marriage in a lot more strict manner for the people of Israel, and it was tied to those promises that they had with the land. And the Levert laws function in this way. And in case you're wondering, this picking and choosing that I'm doing here and saying that we don't have to apply marrying family members, and we don't have to marry those, uh, a brother-in-law if your husband dies, women, that you don't have to do this because the nation state of Israel is no longer of significance in the way that it was in the Old Testament. Who's the Davidic king who sits on the throne of God today? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already been seated on his throne. Psalm 2 describes that moment in history in which the nations rage and the peoples rebel. Acts chapter 3 and 4 says that those nations that were raging were Herod and Pontius Pilate. That Herod, or rather Jesus, the important distinction there, Jesus is king right now. And his kingdom is no longer restricted to the borders of Israel, made up of one ethnic group. It's made up of all the nations, all the peoples. And the inheritance of the people of God who belong to the kingdom of God is the whole earth. So I'm, I'm very thankful that it doesn't apply to us. But you know what? It did apply to the Jews then. The point of what they're making here is that everyone knows that levirate marriage is explicitly a law in God's word. No one disagrees with that. If you want to see an example of this, Ruth chapter 3, when Boaz pursues the kinsman redeemer who's supposed to redeem Ruth and Naomi, but refuses to do so. He is rejected for that. We don't remember his name. We only remember the name of the kinsman redeemer, Boaz. It had a legitimate function. So what is their point? What are they doing? Well, they give this long, elaborate hypothetical of a woman who is married to seven different brothers. And none of them produce offspring, which God calls his people to produce for them. And their point is finally arrived at in verse 23. When they say in the resurrection, when they rise again, which pause, they don't believe in the resurrection. So what is their intent here? 
in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Are you following his logic here or their logic? They're saying God's law commands this practice, leveret marriage. But that would lead to a pretty absurd conclusion at the resurrection. Are you really telling me that people who are remarried are going to have multiple husbands in heaven? And you know what? On an earthly level, I think we can actually sympathize with that. People have divorced legitimately, illegitimately, have gotten remarried, maybe more than one time. How many spouses are you going to have in heaven? Who are you going to be married to? What's the relationship going to be like? Is it going to be kind of a tense situation? Competing loves? No. They are fundamentally misunderstanding and construing the resurrection into something that's absurd because you know what? We don't believe in the resurrection. They don't, they think it's absurd. And at this point, dear Christian, know this. I don't know about you, but every time I've interacted with some sort of objection to Christianity, they don't believe the same thing I don't believe. Things like God sending people randomly to hell, picking some and choosing others, completely arbitrary, and sending really good people sometimes to hell. I don't believe that happens. The same thing that's revealed in people's statements when they object to Christianity is really their ignorance of what the Bible teaches. It's very, very rare that someone understands what the Bible teaches and objects to it on that ground. They object to basically a, res a resurrection that looks like a mere resuscitation, coming back to life. And while we did see some men in the Old Testament with multiple wives, what we never saw, which was completely absurd to them, was one woman with multiple husbands. But if we would kind of go back a couple chapters, we'd see that Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, shows that polygamy of any sort, whether it's with women or with, with husbands or wives, either way, God created the institution of marriage to be between one man and one woman. There, they think that the, this argument is foolproof against the resurrection. That is absolutely absurd to believe otherwise. And they are so bold They've used it so many times, they probably had no idea what was about to hit them next. When he shows, Jesus shows why this is not absurd at all. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? And he gives two reasons. Because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. You see, what people have misconstrued are one of those two things. I think boils down to all the different issues in life of what, why people reject the gospel. 
it's because of either ignorance and sometimes blatantly so and having no desire to seek after a knowledge of how God reveals himself in the scriptures and the way he reveals how things work in reality. Or it's a blatant denial of how God has revealed himself in scripture as all powerful God, able to do whatsoever he pleases. And he's, um, he addresses these in the reverse order. First of all, he, re- he addresses the fact that they deny God's capabilities, the power of God. And he says, for verse 25, when the dead are raised, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Jesus is clarifying for them that this resurrection you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. You believe in a resurrection in which people simply come back to life. They had already seen this happen to Lazarus, by the way. But besides that, was that all that Jesus' resurrection was? Think about what Jesus' resurrection was. When Jesus rose from the dead, as he was the first fruits of the resurrection of the age to come, he did not simply come back to life. The type of life in which he imbibed of was one that was completely transformed. It might be helpful to see this resurrection life by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And don't worry, I'm not going to read all of verse 35 to verses 58 of this dissecting that Paul does of what the resurrection life is. But Paul is answering the same question. In verse 35, he does ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he says to them, because he's speaking to people who also deny the resurrection, verse 32, Paul has already made it very clear that if you deny the resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If this life is truly all that there is, None of God's promises are going to come true for you. You will die. And when you die, your body will rot and you'll be eaten by worms. You know what? You should just live your life however you please, doing whatever you want. That was Paul's argument. And that's not the one I'm coming up with here. But he's answering them. And he says, you foolish person, you who sow do not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. Verse 38, that God has given it a body as he has chosen to each kind its own body. And I'm skipping around here, I know. So you can check me on this. Verse 39, he says, not all flesh is the same. And he goes into this fact that at the resurrection, what's going to happen is a complete transformation of the natural order. That we're not going to, in the new heavens, the new earth, simply transfer back to Eden. But we're going to be living in is Eden, communion with God or with God combined with better. <laughs> living with God, but better. It's going to be a totally new form of existence. And he goes from the stars to the moon 
to animals, that each thing has a glory of its own in which it will be transformed, transfigured. And the body that we will receive is not a natural body, verse 44, but a spiritual body. And even saying in verse 50 that when we, he tells them this, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. What kind of life are we promised throughout Scripture as followers of God? Eternal life. Do you know what kind of life you possess right now? By your very nature, under the curse, ever since Adam? Not a forever life. It's actually been programmed into your very DNA that you will die. Your aging is not just some byproduct of this unfortunate circumstance that we're going to be able to cure one day. There's a mechanism hardwired in you in which you will age, in which you will die. And that is not just a natural thing completely. It's the natural way that things are as a result of the fall. The difference between this age and the age to come, if you want to think of it, is that this age is marked by temporariness in every aspect. Things are constantly subject to change. And the world to come is going to be eternal. In Jesus' answer in Luke chapter 20, when Jesus answers, he gives us extra detail in saying why people aren't going to be given in marriage or be married. Because they'll be like the angels in the sense that they will live forever. And when we think about this natural order, there's so many different things that should strike us as this is temporary. Maybe we can all agree on this as government. Why do laws exist? Laws exist because sin exists. If there was no sin, we would not need anyone to restrain immoral behavior. That's why Christians are said to be a law of the, in of themselves because they have the law written on their heart. The Holy Spirit enables us to abide by it. And when we do what the law requires, we're not going fundamentally against our nature, but we're going according to our new transformed nature. And in light of this, I think it's really helpful to realize that what conversion is, coming to Christ, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, is nothing short of a miracle. It's a miracle that has been invisibly wrought in the heart of every believer, but a miracle nonetheless. What has been natural has died. It is dead and gone. And the believer is someone who has been utterly transformed. In seed form, yes. With remaining corruption, yes. But at our essence, at our core, we are new creation. This is the type of resurrection. And to deny otherwise is first is a denial. To call this absurd is a denial of God's capabilities. It's a denial, that second fill in the blank there, is a denial of God's capabilities. Second Peter chapter 3 also refers to this event, the general resurrection in which God's people and the wicked will be raised to life. And he says, 
and Hebrews chapter 11 is not the place, so that's a bad place to look if you're looking to read 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2, says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing that, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following after their own sinful desires, and they will say, where's the promise of his coming? What is his argument here? His argument in 2 Peter is to say, well, ever since the fathers have fallen asleep, it sure seems that all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. That is true. The temporary order still continues. But what they're forgetting is that the same God that deliberately overlooked this fact, verse 5, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God. And by, and that by means of this, of these, the world, sorry, I'm butchering this, that existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he saying here? That people have scoffed before at God's word. That God's, th- that things happen on God's timetable. That while we're living, we just expect that things are going to happen just like they did yesterday and so on and so forth on into eternity. But we know that for a fact is not the case. God, the God who made the heavens of the earth, who made the waters and the dry land, used those same waters to restart that creation with a flood. You know what, the point here and what he's trying to say is that delay is not delay in God's terms. And God has the power and the capabilities of fulfilling his word, of keeping his promises to raise people to life and to bring people to death, even eternally, life eternally, death eternally. And he's able to keep his promise here in 2 Peter chapter 3 in judgment. And what should be a clue to us to understand God's power is the mere fact that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Ex nihilo. He created everything by the word of his power. And the fact that he did it in six days was not because of some limitation in his power. But the way he chose to do it in six days was to set up our work week. How nice of him. But God can do anything that he wants. Maybe at this point you've encountered something from an atheist or an agnostic. Another chestnut, a hard to to crack nut of a philosophical argument that you probably learned in your first semester of philosophy in college, because if you went any longer, you would see that that it doesn't hold very much water. But we'll, we'll go beyond that for now. That, have you ever heard that if God's all-powerful, can he create a stone which he cannot move? Have you heard that? What's the absurdity in that? The absurdity, first the answer is no. He cannot create that because your definition of 
omnipotence, all-powerful, is not reflective of the reality of who God is. When we say, as Christians, that God is omnipotent, all-powerful, we mean that he can do whatsoever he pleases. There are things God can't do. You know, God cannot lie. Why cannot, why can't God lie? Because God is the God of truth. It's in his very being, in his very nature to tell the truth. And he cannot do otherwise. The omnipotence of God, if we're going to be consistent as Christians, is one that's defined not as this abstract idea of some random God that might have made the universe. We're not left to abstractions in Christianity. What we're left with is God as he has revealed himself. But that doesn't mean there's a limit to his power. Anything God wants to do, he is able to do. He's able to make the universe matter itself in an instant. He's able to govern all of history to accomplish the ends he pleases. You know what, if we're honest, when we look out of the world at our lives, we realize that nothing happens by accident. When we look at creation and see the detail of it, when we see how DNA is formed and there's this information system of the self-reading system, we are blown away by the intricacy of the design that is inherent in it. And we overlook that very obvious fact that we have a creator who can do whatever he does, whatever he wants to do when we ignore creation or don't ask questions. But these people do declare to be Christians of some sort. Maybe some of you know these people who declare to be Christians, but don't believe the Bible because some of it's fairy tales. Maybe you believe, you know of some Christians who claim to not believe in the miraculous, who claim that you don't have to be a, a follower of Christ, that there's multiple ways to heaven. What Jesus shows is that you, if you do not believe in the, these fundamental truths of what God says about who he is, that God you're trusting in for salvation does not have the power to save you because that God does not exist. The only God that exists is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he shows them this. And Jesus doesn't put away the sword of the word. In verse 26, he shows them that this is not absurd. It's not absurd to believe in the resurrection, not only because it is a fundamental denial of God's capabilities, but it's a fundamental denial of God's abilities to keep his promises. Look at this, verse 26, he says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? This would have been a slap in their face. Of course I've let, read the book of Moses. And then he says, where in the passage about the bush? You see, these Bible verses that we have in chapter divisions were not original to the apostle Paul. Well, not original to Mark, not original to Moses. It's a good, helpful reference guide. But this is how you'd quote scripture. You say the passage about the bush. 
And he, rev- he maybe draws an implication from that passage that you wouldn't. He said how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he draws the conclusion that God is not the God of the dead from this passage, but the God of the living. At times when we read verses like this, we think, what is Jesus doing? How is Jesus getting this argument out of this? This doesn't seem like a really good proof text for the resurrection. Why wouldn't he appeal to something else, something more clear? Like the fact that Joseph, when he dies, asked for his bones to be transferred into the promised land from Egypt to the promised land. That's the resurrection. Who cares about bones if once you die, you're dead and gone? He chooses this for a more important reason because he's pointing to a fundamental reality that they're subverting by by denying the resurrection from the dead. And it's more complicated than just saying that he is speaking in the present tense here. There's an aspect of that, that God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God was the God of uh, Isaac, was the God of Jacob. He says, I am. That's true. But that's not really Jesus's precise point. At least I don't think so from the wider context, because just like you should never just quote a Bible verse, anyone could quote one sentence in the middle of a paragraph to make whatever point they want to make. Jesus is not doing that. He is not twisting the scripture, taking this one verse out of context to mean whatever he wants it to mean. He's using the verse in context. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn to Exodus chapter 3 just to look at this because we're told in verse 24, and the reason why I had you back up there, Steve, was because God heard the groaning of his people. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel, and God knew the pains that they were going through. And in verse 6, he reveals himself as the covenant-keeping God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He revealed in this passage at the burning bush the name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. And in this context, he's revealing his name as I am the one. I am the God of your fathers. I am the God who made covenants. I am the God who made promises who will not break them. And these promises, yes, pertain to the people who were suffering. He heard their cries. He heard their pain and anguish, and he saved them. But God did not just make promises to the descendants of Abraham. He made promises to Abraham himself, to Isaac himself, to Jacob himself. They were the people of God, too, who God made promises to. And by God redeeming Israel in this moment, he's keeping the promises that he's made, not to people who don't any longer exist, but to people who are alive, who exist in one form or another. You see, covenants like marriage, Once death happens, it leads to separation 
the covenant, the, the covenant is broken. Once death happens, the relationship is ended. But what has God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's promised to them eternal life, blessings that they never got to see with their own eyes. And if they are dead and they no longer exist, all the promises that were made to them will never come to pass. If there's no resurrection, God has not kept his promises to Abraham. Do you feel the weight of this? This is exactly what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham in verse 13, saying that Abraham obeyed God, that he was told that he would have an inheritance, and verse 10, rather, said that he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were given the promise of a promised land, but you know what? They never saw that land. And when Jacob, when Joseph, sorry, Joshua finally made it into that land, everyone realized that this is not the full extent of God's promises coming to pass. He says in verse 13 that these all died, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not having received the things that are promised. If they're dead and they stay in their graves, they will never be inheriting of the promises and God's promises to them would be null and void. But verse 16, the country they desired is a better, that is a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. And we see this dynamic happening in the life of Abraham himself, not just in Moses. When by faith, Abraham, he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And when he had, and he had received the promises, uh, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen, so this is the scene as Abraham, why was he willing to sacrifice his son to kill Isaac if that was the promise through which God's promises were coming to fulfillment. Verse 19, for he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Why was Abraham willing to plunge the knife into his son on God's command? Because he knew that God cannot lie, that God keeps his promises to the end and if that meant resurrection he believed him for it do you have faith in god like that you know we can look at the sadducees and we can say that it's completely absurd there that there's low heat there's low heat logical cohesion to god's ways and god's works you see, the claim of absurdity is one we need to address because absurdity is the claim that it's wildly unreasonable, that it's illogical, that it's inappropriate, that it's ridiculous to believe these things. The last thing the Bible asks you to believe as a Christian is in the illogical. The last thing God asks you to believe in is in the ridiculous. God commands of you to believe in him because he is the creator who made everything. 
and he will not lie and cannot lie, and he will keep his promises. And it should not surprise us that in the Old Testament, God's promises were less clear because he had spoken less. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son and has spoken clearly and has not left any room for error, any room for disagreement when it comes to the resurrection. Jesus does not take their claim that he, what he believes is absurd and just simply shrug it off. He gives them an answer. And the answer is one founded upon the word of God based on understanding God's power to do what he says he will do. When we talk about faith, we often talk about believing in God in the, in the sense of resting on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That is true. Saving faith is the one which principally, most fundamentally, is looking to Jesus Christ to save us. But how do you know who Jesus is? How do you know which Jesus to trust? Because there have been other people in the past from the Middle East who had the name Jesus. How do you know which one is the Christ? I think the, our confession of faith helps us in chapter 14, paragraph 2, when it says that a Christian saving faith is the kind of faith that believes whatso to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. Why? Because it is on the authority of God himself speaking. What makes us a Christian is because it's grounded, most importantly, on the inerrancy that the book that we have is without error, that it teaches all of God's truth, because fundamentally, all these 66 books, the thing that makes them different from every other book in the world is that they are God's word, that when we read it out loud, we can hear God speaking to us. And the type of faith that's saving faith is one which bends the knee at all of God's words. When it speaks about Jesus, we hear the commands and we hear the authority of God that Jesus is the risen Christ, that the triune God is the one who made the heavens and the earth. And also, we hear his voice speaking in the commands that we listen. On what basis? That's God's word. That's the grounding of all of our faith. You know, the problem with the Sadducees is they thought religion was something that they could just make up. Picking and choosing what they'll believe. We do not have that luxury. Why? Because to say you don't know the truth, having the Bible in your hand, is not being humble. It's calling God a liar. If someone in your life does not know the truth, what does this look like? It looks like we are called to be bold. Called to be bold to stand for the truth, knowing that their only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And no other Jesus Christ can possibly offer them salvation. And we are not so bold as to say we don't know the truth when God has spoken so clearly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, may your spirit give us conviction that the testimony of your word is true and that we would always have the liberty, the freedom from our anxieties, freedom from peer pressure, that we would be free to proclaim the name of Christ, that we'd be so convinced that the word of God is the word of God that we would stake our life on it, that these truths that are contained in the Bible would be ones that we're willing to go to death for because we know they are true. And Lord, may we, as we preach to other people, explaining your word to other people, may your Holy Spirit do the same convincing work that you've done in our hearts. For we know that we cannot convince people ultimately that the word of God is the word of God by our own prowess, by our own wisdom, by our own philosophical insights, but only by the Holy Spirit working through your word. So may we never put your word down, but may we do as Jesus does and make appeal to the scriptures, whether or not they believe it. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.